Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Let me invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to be looking at the midsection of this chapter, and you'll recognize it as our New Testament passage this morning. But because we're jumping into the end of the book, let me offer just a little bit of context. I think that'll be helpful in orienting. 1 Corinthians is a letter Paul is writing back to a church that he has just planted. His founding visit was in about 50 AD, which puts him about 20 years after the resurrection. So these are exciting times for the people of God. And we know from uh, Acts 18 that Paul spent about a year and a half in Corinth, uh, living with names you might recognize, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, And after the church was established, he packed up and he moved to Ephesus. And it's about two or three years into his stay at Ephesus that he gets wind, he gets word back from Corinth that they're having all sorts of issues. They're uh, dealing with a range of issues in their new faith. And not surprisingly, when we think about the character and the makeup of this church, The entire church is made up of folks, made up of new converts, new converts coming out of a very uh, pagan culture, very pagan Corinthian culture, and steeped in the philosophy of the Greeks. The majority of the people in Corinth were Greek at that time. So I think it's helpful to understand just a little bit about the Greek thinking, since this is going to influence the theology of this new church as it relates to the resurrection. It's going to bump up into it in chapter 15. The people of Corinth would have had a general concept of God. They would have had a general understanding of a higher being. But if there was a God, he was unknowable. He was not personal. And if there was a God, nothing, uh, he would have nothing to do with material matter or the material world. The Greeks held to a strongly dualistic view of the world. In other words, the spirit or the spiritual world was good, but the physical or material world was considered evil or bad. So when they're formulating ideas about the human being, the idea that the soul is entrapped, in this evil or bad physical body. So along comes Paul, and he's presenting the claims of Christianity into a culture in which God cannot be known and into a culture where substance is evil. And what is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming a faith that places your complete trust in a knowable and personal God, a God who Uh, revealed himself as the Messiah, chose to take on material flesh. And if that's not countercultural enough, a God who dispenses his grace through material means, water, wine, and bread, so that we can relate to it through our senses, very anti-Greek. So this culture and Christianity have a lot of oil, water elements to them. And so a few years into this new church, these recent converts begin to wrestle with their new faith, 
living out a faith in a pagan culture. And Paul gets word of the struggle. He's 100, about 180 miles by sea. So he sits down and he pens this letter. And if you would sit down this week and read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you'd find in the first 14 chapters, Paul dealing with these issues, just kind of chapter by chapter, issue by issue. The Christian view of marriage, leadership, there's all these splinter groups arising, misunderstanding about communion. Is it okay to eat food sacrificed to idols? speaking in tongues. Sexual immorality is being dismissed. Why? Because it relates only to the body in there. So Paul is working through these issues one by one. And when we reach our text, chapter 15, there is this shift. After addressing each issue, Paul now shifts from the one-on-one, chapters 1 through 14, and he's now going to offer this overall corrective by refocusing the church back to the core foundation, back to the priority and power of the gospel. It is the gospel anchored in the resurrection of Christ, the gospel rightly understood, Paul is going to argue, that is applicable to all these issues that they have been confronted with and will be confronted with. And it is that foundation that will serve to help realign their thinking with the teachings and purposes of God. So aerial view. If we could summarize chapter 15, it is the restoration, the refounding of the Corinthian church to first principle, to its foundation, the gospel anchored in the bodily resurrection of the God-man Jesus. No light scene for Paul. And so Paul, wanting to reestablish the foundation, begins with this reminder. If you're looking at your Bibles, it's chapter 15, verse 1. Now Paul writes, Now that we've covered chapter 1 through 14, I want to remind you of what I preached to you, which you received and of which you have taken your stand. For I delivered to you, he's thinking this is territory that they've already covered, I delivered to you as first importance. In other words, let me remind you of what's important. Let me remind you, Corinth is what is at the heart and center of our faith. And so for the next 11 verses, Paul does this reminder, giving them this sustained apologetic, this defense of the historical underpinnings of the bodily resurrection of Christ. And Paul is writing as if this is a refresher. And as we get to verse 12 of our text, my sense is that Paul is kind of taken back having to retrace these foundational steps, going over again what he thought was already kind of knit to their hearts. And Paul writes in verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how is it that some of you are saying there is no resurrection from the dead? Help me understand where this disconnect is. And it's really important to recognize what exactly Paul is saying, what he is contending with among these new believers. He is not contending with people who believe that something unusual or something unique or something miraculous had happened to Jesus. They had heard, the people of Corinth had heard of the reports of Jesus presenting himself. There's got to be some explanation, but rather these new believers being driven by their cultural biases 
as their starting point, are concluding that this idea of resurrection can't mean that God is going to resurrect these bodies of ours. Why? Because they have been taught all of their lives by their culture that our material body is evil. And after death, human spirits are freed from the body. N.P. Wright, in his brilliant work on the resurrection, titled The Resurrection of the Son of God, writes, they, the Corinthian church, probably regard resurrection from the dead as a perverse doctrine rather than as an impossible one, given their Greek background. So Paul, seeing this clash of worldviews, says, time out. If human beings don't rise from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He's reminding them again that Jesus is both human and divine, and he's kind of pulling the rug out at this point from under their Greek thinking. Listen to Paul in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, in other words, if bodies don't rise, then not even Christ has been raised. And then he continues, and if Christ has not been raised, and now Paul's going to unfold, he's going to expose the result of their thinking, and it's a total collapse of the Christian faith. Paul says, how can you be saved? Kind of a tender pastoral angst in, his, in, the, in the text. Where, where have we missed each other? And he reminds them in these previous verses, Corinth, we did four things. He reminds them, he, he's writing and he pens four different words to try to describe how he has worked so hard at communicating this. We preach. We've delivered, we proclaimed, we've testified. And church, do you, you remember how you responded just over the last few years? You received it? You stood in it? You believed it? You were and are being saved in it? These are all words from our text. This, each of these words have kind of a, an import or a nuance to, to say how the, the Corinthian church had gotten a hold of it. You received it. This isn't Amazon dropping the package off at your porch. This is a people who had owned it. They had internalized it. And now new church, Paul says, you're compromising this truth because you started with yourself. You started with your own human limitations uh, shaped by the culture around you. You started with a human philosophy that told you, Corinth, here is your identity. Here is who you really are. And you took that and you imposed that on your theology. You allowed the culture to shape your view of God rather than allowing God to shape your view of the culture. Paul is helping them understand that if you start with the way your culture has shaped your world, and you try to impose that on the things and nature of God, here's where you will end up with the Jesus who is neither fully human nor fully resurrected. And that means, and now Paul is going to go on and share the results of that line of thinking. He said, our preaching is in vain if what you're saying is true. We have, in fact, misrepresented God. And for you, that means your faith is in vain. That means your faith is futile. And as for this 
foundation that you found so precious. If what you're saying is correct, then you're still in your sin. And the people who have died before you are lost and perished. So to sum it up, church, you're now missing the whole reality of our hope as Christ followers. And if true, Paul says, this would make you of all humanity to be most true. So Paul's is, is, challenge is quite direct. If you persist in this view of the resurrection, you will end up with neither a past nor a future. And there's this general principle in our text that captures our attention. At least I would set, suggest it could capture our attention. And it certainly pushes hard against the spirit of our age. And that is this, that starting with ourselves, embracing a worldview that has been shaped by our culture, we cannot bridge from there to discover the truth and nature of the one true God. We simply can't get there from there. And our great temptation is to hold on to ourself that has been shaped by our culture, that has been shaped by the world around us, and then somehow to fit the gospel into that, to somehow fit our Christian faith into that, fit it into this culturally shaped identity. And it gets punky really fast. Because the Christian faith is countercultural, and therein lies one of its attracting features to a world trying to find meaning in the midst of the chaos. And to counter this, to stand against this, to stand against the world's cultural influence in this increasingly frenzied set of voices is the hard work of being formed in the image of Christ. C.S. Lewis, in his classical work, Mere Christianity, wrote this of the challenge. The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it is far easier, he said, than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do instead is to remain what we call ourselves. And Paul is going to illustrate in verses 20 through 28, the second part of our text, that when we take as our starting point the work of God as revealed in Scripture, we not only discover who our God is, but we discover our true identity as well, our identity in Christ, our true selves, the hope to which he has called you and me. And if I might make a gentle application to those who are still in the midst of parenting, and I have five children, so I do that with a great deal of caution, but I would offer this that of all that we might guide our children in, to set before them, to direct their hearts toward a confidence in the word of God in their lives as the beginning point, as the reference point, in contending with the host of voices and opinions being offered by the world, those voices that are contending for the hearts of our kids and of you and me as so having dealt with the wrong starting point, Paul next turns his attention in verses 20 to 28 to the proper starting point. And you can kind of see that the text is setting before us two models in verses 12 through 19. 
if you begin with your cultural assumptions and apply those to your faith, this is the result. And then the second model in 20 through 28, if you begin with God's revelation as your starting point and let it deal with or shape your assumptions in the culture. So now in this last section of our text, 20 through 28, Paul is going to shift and reframe the resurrection from its biblical starting point. Listen to his words. 15 verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Paul saying, let that be our starting point. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruit, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then verse 24, then the end will come. Then the end, the word here in the text is telos. The ultimate purpose and the end of history that the Trinity has always had in mind when it Jesus hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. All of this, Paul writes, with this as the talos, with the end result, so that God and Trinity may be all in all. And now Paul not only affirms the result of this biblical starting point for understanding the resurrection, but he's now going to give to these new believers a grand historical narrative, a worldview framework from which they can navigate their faith and life, giving us the bookends of history, past and future, remarkably in nine verses. It's the history of the world in nine verses. And Paul does this brilliantly by taking the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus and linking them all the way back to the creation narrative of Genesis, to the original design of God, born of the Trinity, setting the resurrection not as a moment or one of the moments in history, but as the pivotal moment in this history, in God's history. And with that first bookend in hand, Paul then walks us all the way through human history to a finalized future in which the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, verse 28, is all in all. From the first man, Adam, who because of his sin disrupted this design of God, to the God-man, Jesus, our second Adam, who by his resurrection has reset original creation design. He's brought us back to the original creation design. We might call this the Adam continuum. I think Romans 5 lends some help here. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, speaking of the old Adam at creation, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, which is the new Adam, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Our text is saying, Jesus, the new Adam has uprighted the world. And like a parent lifting up his child during a crowded event, our text 
is lifting us up to see the full landscape of God's design throughout history, a summary of God's overall plan, helping us to avoid the temptation of thinking of the resurrection as kind of an isolated event, a momentary suspension of the way things are. The resurrection was not a suspension of the natural order of the world, but it was the beginning of its return, the beginning of the Father's renewal of all things. It was restoration, not aberration, of the natural order of the world, the world as God intended it to be, a new genesis, the meaning of the word renewal in the New Testament. It is what one author refers to as the great reversal, reversing the finality of death from the fall and initiating the palingenesia, the renewal, the new genesis of all things. So Paul describes the resurrection as the type of inauguration, the coming of the kingdom of God, not yet here fully, but substantially. Sometimes you'll hear people talk in terms of now and not yet. This physical resurrection of the God-man Jesus, Paul proclaims, is the guarantor of our future harvest. Listen to his words. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul is using Old Testament uh, language here to describe uh, and, and linking it back to Leviticus 23. It's a rich and storied history from an annual event of the life of Israel. The first fruits was the first celebration of the, of the first crops that came in. So the Israelites would bring the first bundles of barley to the Levitical priest. It was then sacrificed to God on the third day. That's why it's referred to sometimes as the third day feast. And God's acceptance of that offering was a pledge of a greater harvest to come. It served as a guarantee of the harvest. And it would not have escaped Paul or the Jewish people in Corinth that Jesus was crucified and buried on Passover on the 14th. Three days later, during this feast of first fruits, the third day feast, Jesus rose from the dead. For the first Easter, Jewish men who were heads of household would have been ascending the steps of the temple to bring an acceptable offering before the Lord, not realizing the victory that had already been won in Jesus. So Paul is tethering together the Old and the New Testament. Paul is saying that Christ is the first fruits of the dead. He is our anticipatory promise, the pledge of the greater harvest to come the resurrection of those who are in Christ. Paul is submitting to you and me that it is the gospel anchored in the physical resurrection of Jesus that is, yes, our human story, but it is set in the overarching redemptive history that is God's story. He is helping the church of Corinth and by application us, that it is in this full gospel that we find our identity and our purpose in life. It is here in God's overarching story that we are finally and truly found. So why is this overarching story of such great importance? After the great argument of Paul in the preceding verses, why now this 
end-to-end history of the world. At least one reason, perhaps, is because of our tendency to take the gospel and reduce it down to a mere transaction, a personal plan of salvation, what one author calls a half-story gospel. And Paul is saying, wait, the gospel is these four truths. Christ died, was buried, and raised, but, but step back and get a glimpse of its breath, the story of a Messiah that is bringing to completion the story of Israel. The gospel is a single, holy, and apostolic story that began at creation and will end in the culmination of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity being all in all. And Paul is giving the church the whole story of the gospel, an all-encompassing view of the world. Sadly, in our time, over the years, the gospel core, this death and resurrection of Jesus, has been extracted from the grand story of what God is doing in the world, his purposes, and his design. From the story of God in history to a personal salvation plan, often with me at the center. Christ died, was buried, and raised, and now I get to go to heaven. Well, that is true. When you separate that salvation plan from God's redemptive story, recounted from Genesis to Revelation, the grand story can become abstract. Our Bible can end up to be a series of mere propositions, a series of chapters and verses, rather than a cohesive and compelling love story of a God inviting us into the kingdom, not of I would suggest that this reduction of the gospel approach to our witness has caused great discord with the lost world among us. One writer describes it this way. As more evangelical Christians adopted this half-story explanation of their faith, their cultural influence began to fade. As personal decisions for Christ became the short-term measure of success, the church added shallow converts who are unable to see the cultural implications of their faith. And it is this full story gospel that defines and gives meaning to the life of the Christian and the life of the church, answering the question, what is God up to in the world? And where do I belong? I think that is why the Easter vigil is such a powerful service. At the beginning of the service, the people are invited to what? Into God's story, into his history. As we hear the celebrant's invitation, let us hear now the record of God's saving deeds in history. And that is exactly what Paul is doing in our text. Setting the gospel in its full narrative that enables our witness, that entices cultural change, that addresses the longing of a lost world, lost in a search for self-fulfillment. Self-fulfillment outside of God's design tempts us with a temporary fix that always leaves us a more anxious and discontented people. And our text responds back that it is the gospel anchored in the physical resurrection of a true Messiah that provides the counter-narrative and Paul, through the living words of 1 Corinthians 15, is giving us the full richness, 
the full story, the full scope of the gospel, the only worldview from which we are enabled to navigate life and faith. So as we've looked at this text of 1 Corinthians 15, I pray that the text has helped us to think a little bit more deeply about the resurrection. Paul's words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are filled with evidence, historical realities, truths, and sound doctrine, compelling us at times to believe, but to only believe, to merely assent to a set of facts, is perhaps to leave the text too soon. It is true that our faith is certainly lodged in history. It's lodged and rests on persuasive facts, and it rests on the reality of the empty tomb. But it is completed, and it is nurtured in our union with Christ. Anything less is to miss the inextinguishable hope of the full gospel. So let me close with this question. Is it possible? that we might have convictions about all those things, history, realities, and evidence, and miss falling in love with Miss the spiritual union made possible by the resurrection, a relationship that allows the truth of the resurrection to shape not only our minds, but the affections of our hearts as well. Frederick Buechner, um, a favorite author of mine who passed away about a year ago, encouraged our journey in the gospel this way. Turn around and believe that the good news that we are loved is better than we ever dared hope. And that to believe in that good news, to live out of it and toward it, to be loved with that good news, is of all things in the world, the gladdest thing of them all. May God grant that in your life for Jesus.